Ladies and gentlemen, today's Warner Archive Collection podcast is indeed a special one because we're celebrating a career that I think is without peer and a biography, a new biography that is coming out from Simon & Schuster on November 12th. And we're speaking with the author, Victoria Wilson, who has written a book that is entitled A Life of Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True, 1907 to 1940. And I have to say, as someone who has been reading film books and biographies almost since birth, that I have never encountered anything so comprehensive and fascinating as your book. And what an honor it is to have you join us today to talk about how you have approached this magnificent woman's career with such an really incomparable approach. And Matt, Dan, do you want to join in on this introduction? I was so glad that uh, we were able to get in contact with you and, and your people because for me, reading this whole book as I did, I now feel like I can be the super expert and be able to talk to George and Dan much more knowledgeably only up till 1940. The whirls and eddies of facts in this are just so fascinatingly woven together. Dan? Barbara Stanwyck is my favorite actress, and I am overjoyed to spend time with but the first volume of such an impressive work of scholarship. Thank you all, but let me just say before we really begin this interview, while I was writing it and all the way through, what was the greatest help to me, apart from a number of sources, but one of the sources that really was bedrock for me was the Warner Archives. That's wonderful to hear. And I have to say to all those people listening to this podcast, I was not paid to say this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my passion for Miss Stanwyck goes back to really my days as a kid watching Million Dollar Movie in, in New York, the diversity of her career, and then to hear from Matt about your book and that this enormous amount of research and work just covers the first portion of this amazing career. I had lunch with Leith Adams, who is our corporate archivist here at Warner Brothers, who is retiring and who oversaw the USC Warner Brothers collection for years prior to becoming our corporate archivist. And I told him of this and his eyes popped out of his head because he's, and he's such a scholar, and he said he had never encountered anyone approaching any biographical subject with the possible exception of LBJ. Uh, Those are his words, not mine, with such exhaustive attention to detail. It begs the basic question, how did this come to be? How did you come to address Barbara Stanwyck as a subject? First of all, I have at Knopf in my day job, I publish a lot of biographies, and over the years I've published many biographies of cultural history. One of the people who I sort of landed on and who I sort of dragged to Knopf against his will was John Cobell, and we did a lot of books together. You know, what he said was, oh, I'll put the books together, get someone to write them, because John was essentially a lazy guy, even though he was <laughs> magical. And has the most, or had, I should say, the most impressive collection of film photography in the world. Absolutely, and, and ask me how he collected that, and that's the, therein lies a tale. What John would do, we would be working on this book, which was, the first one was called The Art of the Great Hollywood Portrait Photographers. 
which really looked at the studio photographers in a way that nobody had ever paid any attention to them except to admire their work. And in between our work, John would tell me stories of the people, the actors and the actresses that he had met over the years and the cameramen and the directors and all of these people. He was a fabulous storyteller. So I would have him tell me these stories as, as if they were sort of bedtime stories. And one of the people he talked about and he, who he adored was Barbara Stanwyck. Now, I, of course, knew who Barbara Stanwyck was. I'd seen her in movies. She always seemed a little sort of off-kilter, which made her interesting. You know, and then we went on with our lives. I published several books with John. He, alas, got sick and he died. And many years later, I decided, I don't know, I, in working with writers on their books, I would very often talk to them about their research and, you know, sort of say, well, what did you look at this and did you consider that? And maybe it means this and maybe it means that. And I thought, you know, maybe I just have the impulse to write a biography, and I made a long list of possible subjects, and I put Barbara Stanwyck's name down, and I realized that nobody had ever written a serious book about her, and I knew more about her career by that point, but I didn't know that much, and I decided that she was going to be the person, and I set off in Stanwyck land. And how long did it take to put this together? Because it's exhaustively researched. Well, the thing about it, you have to understand, is that I worked during the day publishing books and right. editing them. Every night I would come home from work and, you know, make dinner. At, at a certain point, I stopped ordering in and I said, all right, I'm going to have to learn how to cook because I can't eat this food anymore. So I learned how to cook, among other things. And at about 8 o'clock, I would go to work and I would work till around 11 and then I would it would take me a couple, or 11.30 or 12, and it would take me a while to sort of decompress. Right. And then on the weekends, I would work. So for really, for the first two or three or four years, I did sort of rudimentary research. Mm -hmm. And I started organizing everything that I found in notebooks chronologically, and I put together a chronology. Well, my chronology now, because I still, of course, have volume two to do, is probably about four to 500 pages. And then I started writing. So I wrote for about eight years. And then I said, look, if I take this book apart and start cutting it for one volume, it's not going to be the book that I intended it to be. And I basically wrote it in a way, I wrote it for me. I wrote it as I said, this is the book I would want to read. There aren't the stories you've read a thousand times. There's as much original research as I could possibly get my hands on. I mean, I could write a book about the way I researched <laughs> for this book. The way you wrote the book. Well, one, yeah. I think that, Dan, there's still hope for you to write your magnum opus. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I just, I just can't do Barbara anymore. <laughs> yeah, you got to scratch that one off. I, no, Barbara's done. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to make it clear for people listening that, yes, this is an exhaustively researched book, but it's a real page-turner. It's a really lively story. What you've done is, you know, just starting right at the beginning, the beginning is even before Barbara, is inserted us into this world of, like, early 20th century America and filled it out. You know, Dan, you've, you've done a lot of reading. George, you too. But you've been able to place her and her context within this world and fill it in. And so, you know, you're hitting the big world events. But 
her career, the way that she saw herself in the world is affected by all these outside events and the details that you bring in just make it really come alive like you're almost over her shoulder through these years and it just feels just so real. Oh, well, thank you. You know, the thing is, I went to Gloucester and I went to Lanesville and as an example. In and Massachusetts. In, which is where she came, her family came from. No, he was pointing and, that at me because I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah, Dan talks about Massachusetts. Oh, the time. well, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. Oh. But I had never been to Lanesville. And I'd actually never been to Gloucester. But when I was there, I saw the various houses that her family lived in. And I saw, I mean, it was interesting to me that her family bought all that land because Stanwick was a genius at real estate. And when she died, she left. God only knows what it's worth now. So she had a knack for it, but her family had a knack for it, which interested me. And speaking about that, you know, one of the fascinating things that you, you have in here is when she goes and gets her, you know, it goes through her horse phase up in the valley. And you paint such a wonderful picture of it because, in, you know, in the modern era, that, that's all suburbs now, you know, all expensive houses. And it was just interesting to see, like, how she would have to, you know, get on the horse to go to Van Nuys from the West Valley and, you know, and go through Tarzana. I mean, like, that's that, – I love those details. And, and then, of course, she would want to be in westerns and things because that's, that's what she liked. That's what she did. I think she wanted to be in westerns for a different reason. And I'm going to be developing that more in the second volume. Oh, cool. But I do think that one of the reasons why westerns were so – freeing for her was because the, as she says, she wanted to be where the boys were. She didn't want to be the little lady. She wanted to be out there, you know, carving the path to the West. And I think she was free or able to free herself of certain sort of sexual constraints. And I don't mean her sexuality. I mean, gender constraints. Right. You know, it goes back to Pearl White, which is why I went into so much detail. I mean, everybody's written about Pearl White, but they never really wrote about her. And they never really wrote about how she affected Stanwyck, which was so interesting to me. I found that to be a fascinating setup, especially because what little I know about Pearl White is having seen, you know, surviving perils of Pauline films and the very sanitized Hollywood biography of her with Betty Hutton, neither of which really give you the insight of, you know, this was kind of a groundbreaking woman in the silent era setting a path for the definition of how women can be portrayed in film, which, to your good point, of course, I'm loving what the first volume is, but the second volume you're indicating will deal with films like 40 Guns and the Furies and Cattle Queen of Montana and not to mention the the Big Valley on television. She Absolutely. Created- and there's a lot of really interesting a lot of really interesting moments. I mean, I don't want to give them away, but <laughs> no. there's a lot of really good stuff there. What's your favorite Barbara Stanwyck movie? Well, we know that Lady Eve is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. My favorites are I mean, I've said this to people, and they say, oh, how could you love that movie? That's ridiculous. Okay, well, one movie that I absolutely adore just for the movie itself is The Purchase Price. I would quite agree with you. And that's in our Warner Archive Instant streaming service right now. I absolutely adore Remember the Night. I love my reputation. I do as well. Am I correct? Because that will be in the second part of your book. But was that held back from release 
Yeah. No, a lot of our pictures were held back by Jack Warner. He showed them to the military, but it seemed like it was made before the war ended and came out after the war. Is that Yeah, is that it was I think it was made in 44, 45. Yeah. I don't have all of that on me right now, but of course I knew this is what's so terrible. I knew all of this. A hundred thousand right. times more about Stanwick than I know about my own family. <laughs> <laughs> my reputation was one of the films we put in a Warner Home Video Barbara Stanwick collection, which was an odd amalgam. It wasn't supposed to be her best films. It was a group of films that hadn't yet been made available, and that came out to retail a couple of years ago, but we did a restoration and a remastering of My Reputation, and uh, it's a film that just never got any attention until then, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. But let us know more of your other favorites. I'm, I want to hear more of the list. Yeah. Um, well, I loved... Now, this is a movie that everybody just says, oh, this is ridiculous, but I absolutely adore it. I love its sort of attempt at sophistication, and it was sophisticated. And that is East Side, West Side. I love that movie, too. And that was in the same collection. But this was probably in the same collection, BF's Daughter. That's a Warner Archive title. Yeah. But that was a Metro picture. We own the... Uh, yeah, I know. Because I know that you uh, <laughs> are colleagues uh, with our files that are down in Turner in Atlanta. That, yes, I can saw you believe that, that I got in there? No, and I think that's <laughs> remarkable. Uh, but Glad somebody did. <laughs> I've been working with the library for 25 years. and uh, Again, I could tell you hysterical stories about how one thing led to another. But <laughs> I was looking through... I mean, I had most of the movies. And remember, there was nothing on... I mean, when there was no internet when I started, right? right. That was right. what I assumed, yeah. is that you were you know, working it's like, on this um, for It's so like long. I'm saying I was working in the pioneer days. Right. Mm -hmm. But there was no internet, and so I amassed all these movies on tape, which I actually still have on my bookshelf. One film that I would love to ask your thoughts on, because it's a seminal film in the annals of, of pre-code, and it's in our streaming service, and it was when I started doing the Forbidden Hollywood VHS tapes back in the late 80s, which then became the DVD series, which we've continued to do, is Babyface. You wrote a, at length about Babyface and Illicit, The Purchase Price, Nightmare, so many of those important pre-code films. I think of Barbara Stanwyck as really probably one of the leading lights of the pre-code era, probably the most famous notable one. Would yeah. you concur with that? Mm, that's interesting. I'd have to think about that. Well, I mean, she was certainly up there, and she was not to be held back. In the book, you know, like a movie like Babyface, because I went and rewatched it actually last night just because it was talked about in the book and I, I wanted to refresh my memory. But in watching it now and after reading the biography, I really did see a lot of Stanwyck's biography, you know, her taking that into that, that very ambitious character. I mean, it's a caricature of herself, but, you know, that ambition and just that steel the raw will. ambition and the steel will and even the Nietzsche stuff, you know, like, like that just comes right through, especially after reading the book. Well, I mean, the thing that she said is, you know, she was just Ruby Stevens and she just wanted to earn money to get out and to get out of Brooklyn. I mean, that's when she was young, that's the way she saw it, and that's what happened with that woman. I mean, what happens to that woman obviously isn't what happened, right. you know, isn't the level that, ha that happened to Stanwyck. And, you know, Stanwyck was a much purer soul than that woman. But the most interesting thing to me about that movie is that, as I write about in the book, is that she and Zanuck basically 
develop that script together. You know, nobody knew that. So relating to both this volume and then your next volume, you bring up Zanuck. For those listening who don't know, Daryl Zanuck was a production chief here at Warner Brothers until 1933. He left to form 20th Century Pictures, which merged with the Ailing Fox Film Corporation, and Zanuck reigned supreme at 20th Century Fox off and on for 30-plus years. And let me add... He was also a writer and wrote millions of scripts. And basically built our studio with Rin Tin Tin. But I seem to feel that Stanwyck worked with him quite often throughout the years later at at Fox in the 30s and even in the the 50s. Did they have a good, strong relationship that lasted throughout the decades? Because professionally, those things don't always last. Uh, Was that the case between the two of them? Well, I think they did. I mean, the thing is, I think people... You know, is what she said. You know, she said he didn't run fast enough. Now, who knows, who knows what really happened around that desk? And, you know, when you write a book like this, or any book, you, as a writer, you, you create your rules that you follow. And one of the rules that I followed in this book is that I was never, I was trying very hard not to write from hindsight. So everything that I mention, everything everybody's done only goes up to that moment. Right. So one of the other rules is, you know, if I either I saw them having sex or I have a third person telling me they had sex or I have some other proof. If I didn't have that, I didn't write it. And your point of view, that makes it really interesting because that's where I was saying, like, it's like you're over her shoulder. You're right there in the moment. And and you're right. You don't really bring in the there may be some foreshadowing. But not much. It's like you're right uh, yeah, there. Yeah, you are like living the moments as she lives them. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what I try to do. But the other, just to go back to, to the thing about, because nobody ever makes this point, and this is why I went into so much detail about the theater and what was going on mm-hmm. in the theater with Mae West sex and with the Vortex and mm-hmm. with all of those plays. Because I think, and you know, where, where they were cracking down and you know, raiding those theaters, because I definitely think there was a correlation between what happened at the theater, and then it travels to Hollywood, that what happened in Hollywood was totally affected by those plays and what was going on in New York, that freedom that was being expressed in New York in the theater. And just as the freedom was starting to be expressed on the screen, the production code in the Breen office came cracking down. And yet it came through. It's interesting you bring up the Vortex. MGM had bought the screen rights to the Vortex, but never made the film because they could never get past the censorship. Mm. But so much of the early 30s cinema is influenced by what happened on Broadway in the 20s. People like Cagney and Joan Blondell came out here, Joan Crawford. And why Stanwyck is such a great figure to follow because her life you know in microcosm you get to see the advent of Broadway and the chorus girls and then the burgeoning of the sound era in this person who is sort of remarkably like the ultimate transition crew person working class person but also probably the finest actress of her era and then uh, when you go into Frank Fay and his career and you do a wonderful job describing him on stage Mm -hmm. and how important he was on the stage and his difficult transition into Hollywood you know like that's just great stuff that I think any one of our listeners would love to read because the vaudeville and theater is so influential on early film but it's harder for us to see that because obviously 
At least I don't have a time machine. I think that this is a book that we, you know, without being crassly commercial, yeah. we heartily and emphatically recommend that anyone who loves film Absolutely. seek out this book because I'm usually not at a loss for words, but <laughs> I'm pretty speechless because I think it's an unprecedented work of such amazing magnitude and detail that it's going to fascinate and delight a lot of people who are passionate, not only about Barbara Stanwyck, but about Film motion history. pictures and, and, and the entertainment industry. Popular yeah. culture in yeah. general. I mean, it's all right here. Like you know, the 20th century. Yeah, like radio and how that influences films. I mean, you, you touch on everything. And then all of a sudden, 1940, what's going to happen now? So I assume you're still at work on part two. Well, actually, what happened after I decided that I... And Simon H. Schuster was kind enough to allow me to do this in two volumes, or I should say insane enough to allow me to do this in two volumes, is that I then stopped writing, and then I had to take... I, originally, I ended the book later, but it was just too long, and I just kept cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back. So I then had to spend like a year and a half shaping it into a book that ended when it ends. And then, you know, edited it many, many, many times over. So I've been doing that. And I guess, you know, in February, I mean, I would say volume two is about a third, little little over a third written. And, um, I mean, I'm up to about 1948, 49. Well, we've got a way to go. I, I, I have a way to go. But, you know, the <laughs> thing is, there are movies in the 50s that she made that really are fabulous. Yeah. And really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then her early years in television are, to me, a fascination. And um, there's a lot going on. And then, of course, at a certain point, the woman could not get a job. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because you know, everybody who's written this about film noir, and I publish a guy who wrote probably the best book on film noir, Foster Hirsch. But it's interesting because after the, I mean, the Second World War changed everything. You know, I mean, I remember, I grew up on Million Dollar Movie. In fact, the movie that I, I was madly in love, I mean, of course, I was like 10 years old. The movie that changed my life was, I don't know if anybody remembers this movie, was Mr. Peabody and the Mermaid. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. William Powell. It's a great picture. It's, of course, un an unwatchable movie, but to me it had, <laughs> it had great sexual whatever <laughs> at the age of 10 or 11. But, I, you know, I grew up on those, and I grew up on the early show. I mean, I mean, and the late, not the late show, but I always watched the early show. I mean, that was my education. Right. I mean, one of the things I've come to believe is that people do things out of passion, and it's true about the movie makers and the movies they made. It comes out of their childhood. You know, the things that affected them in childhood and the things, one of the major things that affected me in my childhood was the movies. But not movies, I mean, I would always go to the movies, but it was these old movies that were, that really somehow went very deep inside of me. You know, on our podcast, we talk about the exact same thing. You know, there's some early programming that goes on. It influences you. Yet at the same time, you can escape it sometimes and take on new things, right, George? That's right. But, you know, in terms of pre-code, I mean, everybody always brings up Babyface, but I think of Stanwyck's movie, the one in truly insane pre-code movie is Night Nurse. Night yes. Yeah, <laughs> Night Nurse. And Wellman, and you write extensively about that and have a wonderful picture of him as well. 
because it just captures his intensity. He's one of my favorite directors, and I'm friendly with his son, Bill Jr. Well, you know, I'm just publishing Bill's biography of his father. Well, I know about that from talking to him, that he's been working on it forever, so now I know who he's been talking to on the other side of the telephone. So it's uh, six degrees of separation. That's he was like, George, I'm just finishing a new book about my dad. And, you know, that was a couple of years ago. So we're telephonically speaking, but I'm grinning from ear to ear because I'm so excited for that project. And next time you talk to Bill, he'll tell you. I've been a passionate advocate of his dad's work and uh, getting it out there. And I feel that there is a, a kinship between Wellman and Stanwyck. Oh, absolutely. And, and the irony of uh, one of my favorite Bill Wellman movies is Westward the Women, where mm. Robert Taylor, were they pretty much divorced? Yeah, by they that were period? divorced by then. You know, but uh, I think of his role in that. That film has a very kind of pro feminist viewpoint at a time when films didn't. And I'd like to think that she had some involvement in making... I think she did. I mean, she totally educated him. (laughs) Well, then, psychically, I wasn't off track. That's a a wonderful... No, absolutely not. But, you know, the point is that what was so interesting about Wellman is that, you know, he loved women like that. Exactly. That comes so clearly through in that movie. That's a big seller of ours, by the way. Westward, the women, indeed, indeed. So, again, we want to mention the book coming from Simon & Schuster, November 12th, A Life of Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True. 1907 to 1940, a magnificent achievement by Victoria Wilson, who has been so gracious to spend time with us today talking about her new book. And uh, with all that you have ahead of you, I guess we'll be speaking in about 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope sooner. Let's hope hope sooner. And I want to thank you all, George, Dan, and Matt, for this great interview. It's been a a delight and a pleasure. And uh, a special hats off to... Uh, even though I'm not wearing a hat, I'd take one off to Matt for bringing us all together because uh, we're all Stanwickians and uh, to be able to speak with you about this incredible achievement and let our listeners know about it is an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you, really. Thanks, and good work, Matt. We appreciate it. Yes, bravo. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast.